Hey guys, before we jump into this episode, I just wanted to let everybody know that our episode on The Matrix Resurrections is now available to Beyond the Screenplay patrons. So just head to the link in the show notes, or if you're watching on YouTube, just click the little pop-up in the top right corner to go straight to that episode on Patreon. Now, let's jump into our conversation about Die Hard. I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about the 1988 film Die Hard, also known as Home Alone for Grown Ups, screenplay <laughs> by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza, based on the novel by Roderick Thorpe and directed by John McTiernan. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Yippee Kai, Michael Tucker. <laughs> and Alex Cayeros. Hi. How did I not see that coming? It's, it's, <laughs> That's so easy. It's, it's right there. Oh, God. Um, excellent. Uh, so here we are. We're going to talk about Die Hard. First, a uh, couple updates. So this is the last fresh podcast that we are recording this year. Uh, so this, you are listening to this listener on December 24th or afterward. Uh, and next week for the New Year's Eve release, we're going to be pulling one of our episodes from our Patreon vault. So our episode on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse will be available for everyone to hear. Just one of many excellent, uh, films and hopefully excellent episodes that are available to patrons. Uh, so you can look for that next week and we're also going to in january do a couple fun things so we're gonna be doing our what we're watching series on the book of boba fett which is going to i think uh generate lots of interesting conversation there will be lots of thoughts had and discussed uh and then also in january we're going to be doing our trilogy on the godfather trilogy as per our getting past a 1,000 patron goal on Patreon, which is really exciting. So a lot of things going on to look forward to in the new year. Uh, and it's crazy that that we're here. Another year has passed. And and now we're going to talk about Die Hard. Um, <laughs> yes! <laughs> uh, yes. So Trisha is very excited. Uh, this is a movie from the 80s. And despite that... <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good i i watched mm -hmm. it for the first time three years ago i think three or four years ago because there was talk about doing lessons from a screenplay video on it and people were mm. talking about it and requesting it and you know <laughs> is it is it a christmas movie is it not a christmas movie we're going to talk about that only for the next hour i'm sure yep. everyone would love that um but I watched it and I was like, yeah, okay, it's fine. I see why people probably like it a lot. Uh, I have issues with the 80s, as we've said, but it is also well known for kind of being like a perfect action movie and structurally being very sound and the pacing is really good and all the stuff that I appreciated much more the second time around. So I went in to this kind of ready to be a little humbug about it but found myself enjoying it moment to moment um so that's that's been my journey with die hard um 
Trisha, do you want to tell us about your journey with Die Hard? Sure. So I also saw this uh, as an adult, for sure. It would have been in the winter of 2008. And by that, I mean like January, February winter of 2008. Um, I was seeing this guy and... uh, Actually, I, d- I don't even know because like literally nothing ever happened except that we watched all the Die Hard movies and ate a lot of pizza. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I-, I think that was the extent of our relationship. And maybe it was the most perfect relationship I've ever been a part of. But this <laughs> right. is, There are like, definitely worse relationships. <laughs> neither one of us had ever seen any Die Hard movies. And I-, I think we went on like four dates and they were just all Die Hard movies. <laughs> and, like, um it was so good like i i don't know it was just really really fun i love action movies that is well documented these are some of the best around especially this one like it it really um introduced this new kind of action hero to us you know bruce willis in the way that we think of him now is john mcclain right like the bruce Mm -hmm. willis prototype was created in this movie and Everybody wanted to cash in on it because it was so relatable. It was so successful um, after this movie came out. And so it just kind of changed the way that Hollywood was thinking about action blockbusters and what they are and the kinds of leading men and the kinds of villains that could be like facing off against them. It's such a landmark movie for so many reasons. Um, You know, the containment is a factor that I can't wait to talk to you guys about Mm -hmm. because... I've I like wanted to write a video about containment for the channel. Um, and this is like one of the best, most contained action, you know, thrillers, I guess, comedies. Uh, I think Brian <laughs> pointed out that back then all action movies were also kind of comedies in some ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, there was a, a flippancy to action. Uh, but yeah, there's just there's so much that's so I don't know. I was just going to say a effective but that doesn't feel like there's so much that's just so fun what a ride this movie is uh from start to finish and so i i don't know i just really enjoy it i like all the diehard movies um i'm not that discerning when it comes to like action (laughs) movies as long as there's some good action but this one is is so good and i i do basically watch it every christmas season so very thrilled to be here. Nice. Glad we finally have gotten you into a chair, Michael, and, and forcing you to talk about it. Yeah. Yes. Here, here we are. Um, excellent. Cool. In chairs. Okay. <laughs> yes. Here we are in chairs. Uh, Brian, from your chair, what are your what are your feelings on Die Hard? Uh, yeah, I um, love this movie. Love this franchise. I have no idea when the first time I saw it was, but it's just one of those movies that feels like it's always been there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, love love the third movie too, Die Hard with a Vengeance, with Sam Jackson and very good uh, Jeremy Irons as uh, Simon Gruber, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the the like trivia is that most of the Die Hard sequels were not written as Die Hard movies, but then they were just like, but what if if it was John McClane and they're like, all right, <laughs> like that's yeah. how like Dire with a Vengeance came up. It wasn't supposed to be Hans's brother. It was just like, um, but, uh, but yeah, so I've seen it many times. Um, and it's a movie I always come to when I try to think of a movie that's like a perfect movie. That's also not trying to do anything other than be a movie. And like I, I've said sometimes, like, yeah. oh, you can have a movie like Die Hard and people are like, whoa, 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 Die Hard's great. I'm like, no, 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 it's great. It's just not trying to do anything other than yeah. entertain you for two hours. Like there are some there's some light thematic content, obviously, as like any movie 
should have, but it's not, no one making this movie is thinking, I really hope the viewer goes away from this really thinking about their life or anything. It's just like, here is a solid piece of entertainment for you. And it just absolutely works. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So Alex, what about you? When did you see this movie? Uh, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Michael, where it, it, it just passed me by in my youth. It, it wasn't, I was never shown it or I never saw it alongside the James Bond movies or you know, Star Wars, all these other franchises that were just always a part of my consciousness. This was not one of them. Um, and and I and I'm watching it, I think I just watched it for the first time a couple of years ago. Um, and when I watched it, I was like, oh, man, if I had seen this when I was, you know, that like. I don't know, like 10 years old, mm. early teens, whatever, you know, that, that kind of still a kid, but kind of becoming a preteen age. It totally could have been in that pantheon of those movies that have always been with me, but I didn't. And so so I saw from that more, yeah, just jaded adult perspective of watching a classic 80s movie. But I, you know, especially re revisiting it, like you said, Michael, I was able to now watch it just thinking about what this movie changed and what this movie put into place all the tropes all you know, yeah, the, yeah. the bruce willis style action hero you know the the bad guy and all of his henchmen are so distinctive in in a yeah. way that is i think I've, I've seen you know replicated but never quite as well you know in some ways um it, it started this genre of you know the the every man lone guy in the contained space against the invaders <laughs> you know i think about um you know con air or just you know mm -hmm. a lot of different you know, different types of like vehicles or places you put people in with a bad guy, like keeping them there that like this kind of started that. So I do think is a landmark action movie in a lot of ways because of it pivoted away from, I think a different type of eighties action movie um, where they, it was, you know, Rambo or just these kind of, or Arnold Schwarzenegger, just like these gigantic, like almost impossible men who <laughs> are yeah, just yeah, yeah. like, don't, don't really have a personality, but but John McClane is, is all personality and he's just a New York cop. He's just a regular guy who's in this weird situation. And he's he thinks it's crazy, too. And he's you know making quips about how nuts this all is the whole time. So and Bruce Willis, I just got to say, like, Bruce Willis is really hot in this movie. I don't think <laughs> oh, I never, yeah. ever like I don't think I'd ever really appreciated or seen like super hot Bruce Willis and. I get it. <laughs> yeah. I love how I when they're landing on the plane at the beginning, the stewardess is like, oh, hi. Uh -huh. He's walking <laughs> right, by yeah. with his bear. <laughs> and I just appreciate how they just make him take off more and more of his clothes as the yes. movie goes on. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine with it. Thank you, John McEwen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's actually a funny thing that, you know, like this movie was offered to Schwarzenegger and Stallone and sort of right. like all of the normal people. And Bruce Willis at the time was david addison on moonlighting like he was sort of a comic tv actor but as you're pointing out alex he his personality being brought into this movie is what makes die hard die hard i mean the script and everything is great but it's like but what if instead of a stallone or a schwarzenegger we had this sort of muscular good looking you know action guy but who's also cracking jokes and just you know fist with your toes like just like everything is kind of a ridiculous joke to him i about him the way he looks there were multiple <laughs> shots where i was like bradley cooper like i think he mm. looked like bradley oh. cooper and i think you could do like a side by side in some of the shots and it was like i don't know to me it felt very similar um but yeah his as you guys are saying his performance adds so much to it and it's more impressive 
given the fact that he doesn't have scenes with people he's talking to himself essentially (laughs) for most of the movie uh but it's like believable and compelling and it's it's somehow in this weird zone where he can make these quips and these one-liners that doesn't like it it feels like he is saying it for himself to entertain himself and right. not like he's looking at the camera and making a joke for the audience right. and that's somehow that's a that's a hard line to walk and i think he does it very well well i was thinking a lot about that this time around and maybe we can spend a few minutes talking about the exposition of which there is so much and this movie handles it really <laughs> interestingly um and some of it definitely feels expository now when you watch it we're like well we gotta hear about all the safe safe measures at nakatomi plaza and we gotta mm, hear seven about, locks like or yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and yeah all the the different mechanics that are in place and 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 that certainly doesn't it's handled as gracefully as possible, but it still feels a little bit uh, crowbarred in there. Um, but the device of having a character who talks to himself is a really difficult device to pull off. Yeah. And it's interesting that this movie establishes it so early on, right? Where he's essentially, especially because... He essentially needs to be kind of a reticent character who doesn't want to talk to people, right? He kind of needs to have this chip on his shoulder and this, like, doesn't really want to be here ever, which is part of char- his charm, right? Where it's like, he, John McClane does not want to be the hero of this movie. He's very, very reluctant hero. Um, and he doesn't want to make friends with strangers. He's not here to impress Holly's boss. He's not here to like, you know, charm her coworkers or get dressed up for this party. He doesn't want to do any of that. He doesn't want to be here in the first place. And so having a character that doesn't want to talk, but then basically needs to talk to himself the entire movie (laughs) is a really risky thing to do. And I really like the different like little moments that the movie sprinkles in early on where he is kind of talking to himself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it, there's a couple where he sees at the airport, right? The like young woman runs up to her boyfriend and he's jumps into her boyfriend's arms. And, you know, John McClane looks at her and he's like, oh, California. Uh, and he says almost exactly the same thing at the party, right? Like some stranger comes up to him at the Nakatomi party and kisses him and it tells him Merry Christmas. And he's like, oh, California. And like wipes <laughs> off his face. Um, that's, that's, those moments are so small, but they're so critical because he isn't talking to anybody but himself, right? He's not looking into camera. He's not looking at somebody else in the room. He's just kind of talking to himself because he feels awkward or he's a little overwhelmed and doesn't know what to make of the situation. And so I think those little moments are crucial. There's another one too, where um, he's going to find Holly's name on the like screen Mm -hmm. finder and he sees that it's not under her married name. And he's just like, oh, Jesus Christ, I think is what he says. And and mm. he doesn't say to the desk guard, oh, she, it's under her maiden name. I can't believe she changed it. He, he makes a realistic comment, but it is to himself. Um, and then it sets us up later for when we hear, you know, he's going to confront Holly about it. So there's lots of little moments like that that make it grounded enough 
that when he's, you know, full on in an air vent going like, oh, come out to the coast, we'll have a few laughs. Like, <laughs> we're ready for it by that point because we've seen him talking to himself so much by then. I will say in general, what you're getting at too is just how efficient the first act is at mm-hmm. setting oh, yeah. up the characters and their delight, you know, the 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 issue with him and his wife and all of that is really well done and done so efficiently and so quickly um so that when when he gets to that you know they only have like one scene together him and his wife where he's washing up in in the corporate bathroom or whatever and uh by that moment we already kind of know everything about them and they have that little flare up and it's, Mm. it's all we need to understand you know where they are in the relationship what the problem is and so that's all we need to for the rest of the movie until the very end. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the best line of exposition in this movie is when she says to the, you know, to the housekeeper, um, uh, let's, uh, let's make up the spare bedroom. Mm-hmm. Cause that tells mm-hmm. you two very important things. One, they're separated Two, they're friends. He can stay in the spare bedroom, right? It's not like, Oh God, he's in town or whatever, you know? And I just love that. It's like, so much is communicated about their relationship by just basically one sentence, which is like, he is staying here, but not with me, which Mm -hmm. I love that. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yeah. And that during that scene, that one scene that they have, where they, they're they interrupted, right, by that couple at the party that's, like, mm-hmm. looking for a place to, you know, be mm. naughty or whatever. Yeah, 80s um, corporate party. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> even that was, like... That's not really exposition, but it's kind of it's doing scene work of like yeah. juxtaposition of like the, the, these two people, John and Holly are estranged and they're trying to figure out what their relationship is. And for a moment, like a young couple that's like, you know, mm-hmm. in love, lust, whatever with each other barges in and like just as they leave, that's kind of hanging in the room and providing like that extra context. And so it was just like a little moment where I was like, that didn't need to be in there, but it makes everything better just by having that moment. And it does like pacing things at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And and that scene where they're having essentially a fight is really smart because it's just the classic textbook. If you're going to do exposition, do it in conflict where it's like, well, you weren't supportive. We had this argument six months ago. And it's like, I, you didn't care what it did to the kids and like our marriage. And um, it's, telling us the timeline of the backstory but it's doing it embedded in conflict so the first time you hear it you don't bump on it you're just thankful for that information where you're just like oh thank you it was six months ago great now i know it's actually it's a little less graceful in the scene with argyle in the car but it's still conflict Mm -hmm. (laughs) where it's like he doesn't want to tell argyle Right. Like put an Argyle in your movie and do it just (laughs) right. He will manage to somehow get all the exposition out in a way that is enjoyable, but clearly doing lots of exposition very quickly. Yes. And and before we leave that scene with him and Holly, I also really appreciate that he immediately beats himself up about it. afterwards. That also really endears us to him. And, you know, if he was just stubborn and wasn't hearing her, you totally thought he was in the right. 
um, then I'd, I'd be on Holly's side. But the fact that he's he's already beating himself up about it, he knows he's kind of wrong. He's screwing this up, uh, makes us like him. And talk about little moments where he's talking to himself. That's a really like that's one of the bigger, more on the nose moments where he's like real smooth, John, great job. You know, mm, right. And <laughs> that sets us up for that moment later where he's like, why didn't you stop him after uh, Nakatomi? Um, no, not Nakatomi. What's his name? Mr. Takagi is shot um, where he has like a full on conversation with himself, like mm. <laughs> enacting both parts, <laughs> having an argument of like, why didn't you stop him? Cause then you'd be dead too. It's like that little moment where he's beating himself up about Holly is already prepping us for that moment later where he's beating himself up for not saving Mr. Takagi's life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something because I, I really bump when characters talk to themselves in movies and I didn't even think about how much John talks to himself in this movie. And I think <laughs> that's because, be, right. Because it's constant. So it's just like, as you said a couple of times, Trisha, it's just like, it introduces it right away. Little, little tiny things he says. So by the time he's having full conversations with himself, you're like, yeah, that's what this character does. And I think what it bothers me is when, you know, an hour into a movie, a character suddenly says something to themselves and it just feels like so weird. And like, no one would ever say that, you know, but this movie just sort of, Peppers it in, you know, it's in the writing, but it's also in in the performance where he just like some people can pull that off and other people can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is kind of in a kind of a, a topic change here. But one thing that was fun watching at this time was thinking about how this is you know the end of the 80s, right before a lot of my favorite 90s movies like Terminator 2 or Jurassic mm-hmm. Park and seeing kind of like the origin of just these tropes that appear in a lot of my favorite movies, you know, like like the corporate office building space you know t2 has this whole shootout Mm -hmm. craziness uh in that same kind of space and i get a lot of those vibes from die hard the automation of everything you know the idea that a hacker can go in and like Mm -hmm. turn off all the elevators and like all the gates are going to come down and the whole park is going to be you know electrified fences are down (laughs) very jurassic park in that way Mm -hmm. the name Gennaro can only exist in the right. yeah. Jurassic Park and it was very disturbing that it was in this movie. Uh, so that's just another fun thing to, to, when you watch kind of the end of the eighties, it is for those of us who, you know, the early nineties was like the time when cinema became a part of our consciousness. Um, it's fun to go back a little bit earlier and see, Oh, there's these tropes, things that are already kind of coming into play in movies like Die Hard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it was interesting to look at his filmography. So the John McTiernan, the director, and mm-hmm. to see that he did The Hunt for Red October, which was recently on my top 90s list, but yeah, also so Last Action Hero. Mm. Uh, and I loved Last, Last Action Hero and saw that a lot. Uh, and someday it'd be fun to talk about it. But it was interesting to see that he was for people that don't know last action hero is kind of like a parody action Mm -hmm. film that's kind of investigating and pulling apart the idea of what an action movie is and it was weird to then see like oh he's the guy that did die hard also Uh he kind of created this thing that later he's like dissecting and and die hard was as as we're talking about already kind of a reaction to other action movies uh so i feel like there was just a lot more of that context in my head, this watch through. And like you're saying, Alex, you know, understanding the influence it had on other things. And so I was really paying attention to the action and how it very uh, 
methodically and at the right pace builds up and up like it doesn't start with like a huge explosion and big things like there's there's a very nice pacing and um you know like we're saying it makes us care about the characters in the first act but it gives us enough to know that like bad things are coming uh and it also cares a lot about us being able to track uh every step of his journey of john's Mm. journey in this like Mm -hmm. battle where it matters how many terrorists there are he has them written down on his wrist so he can know the names like we know the names by the end it's such a different way to approach approach action where it's like every one of these people will matter so it's not just going to be people shooting randomly at you know red shirts that are falling out of the sky or whatever like everything has uh, a, a purpose and we know where we are in every step of that journey and the that's it feels like really unique like lots of other movies have done it pretty well but there is something special about die hard that to me anyway really stands out as like this is a really nicely contained and measured and fun action movie and i understand very much now why that is such a big deal mm it feels almost archetypal in a way like it's just mm-hmm. it's like here is here is like the good solid version of all of the good things that this kind of action movie should have and, and you, you kind of can't argue with the way this movie does those things like the bad guy is a great bad guy you know alan rickman <laughs> so good the henchmen all have their like things and they've got you know different desires and and their their personality quirks that makes them memorable you've got uh like kind of side stories like subplots a reporter comes into into play like yeah. midway through the movie and there's like mm-hmm. a reporter's subplot so the movie keeps kind of getting more and more layered and more complex and the feds are here it, it, it just kind of does does it all but like you said michael it doesn't do it too much and we don't devolve into just chaos where nothing matters anymore and bruce Willis is invincible and all the stakes are gone it it it, it keeps that moderation so that up until the end the stakes are high and things could happen to john mcclain or his wife we 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 believe that something bad could happen well it's really cleverly paced is the thing like you're you mentioned this just a second ago michael but it doesn't it doesn't rush to get us into an action sequence before it needs to it takes its time with john and holly um we take our time getting to the party. You know, we set all the exposition in place. But in a movie that was going to cover more ground in terms of time, like in a movie that would take place over a week or two, like most films do, the timeline of most feature movies is a couple days to a couple months, right? Like most films don't span more than a couple months worth of time. And a couple weeks is pretty much average where it's like, here's a little season in a character's life where they like learn a little thing. Right. And when you're, when you have these unique movies with this sort of really, really abbreviated timeline, you have to prepare the audience for that. And so, you know, in a normal movie, we would just cut from say John landing at the airport. We'd have that first scene on the plane, maybe. Right. If it was really important that we needed to see that the character doesn't like flying or anything. Although that in itself is just a really smart way. The first thing we know about John McClane is that he's nervous mm-hmm. and like not a tough guy all the way down. Right. Like 
I just love that as like a little, it's, it's his snakes, you know, he's Indiana Jones and doesn't like snakes. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. But we might have that opening scene on the plane, but then we would probably cut to the party and he's at like going up and talking to Holly at the party, right? That would be the next scene that we would cut to because in a normal movie, we need to move along. We need to get to the A plot, which is, you know, or his character arc plot, which is his relationship with his wife. So we would not ride in the car with Argyle. We would not walk into the lobby and search for the name on the, the thing. We would not look around at all the elevators. We would not talk to any strangers at the party or meet Ellis or anything. We wouldn't do any of that. And so the movie is signaling to us by how long it's taking to get through the events just leading to that conversation with his wife that settle in, everybody. This movie is not going to zip through the night. In fact, we're not going anywhere. This is mm -hmm. the pacing of the movie. Every detail is important. Pay attention. And I think it's so brilliant. Like, if you're going to do this kind of contained all-in-one-night thriller or, you know, It'd be hard to imagine a timeline that's even shorter than this one. But if you're going to do it, you need to really prepare the audience to just like sit back and listen up. And that's a real challenge to do. And this movie just has the confidence to do it. And it's like, hey, you just met this these characters and we still have, you know, like we're sitting in the car with Argyle. We're talking about the whole thing and her job and her career. And um, it takes a while. But it really works. And I just think that like, yeah, if you have a pacing thing, you need to prepare the audience for the pacing, whatever the pacing is going to be, just get us ready within the first few seconds, if you can. And all the people that we meet along the way, as you're saying, we're going step yep. by step by step, every person except for the weird guy on the airplane um, <laughs> comes back and pays yep. off and has a role to play in the story. And so I think that you know, there's no way for us to really know that consciously while it's happening. But like you're saying, there is this confidence to the way it's all unfolding that I think subconsciously clues us in to like, you know, this isn't just a car ride with a random guy that we're never going to see again. Like Argyle is maybe going to be an important part. And that's why we're spending a little bit more time than we might otherwise on these scenes and on these moments. And at the same time, it doesn't linger too long, right? I checked, did a time mm, check okay. this time around when the terrorist van pulls into the parking garage and it's at 14 minutes and like 45 seconds. It's mm -hmm. on like the 15 page mark. This is your inciting incident. Here we go. And so it knows how to like, the pacing is textbook perfect for the, the sort of microcosm or like micro timeline that this movie is. Yeah. And with what you're saying, Michael, about like, you, you kind of know these characters are kind of come back. There's, I'd be curious to sort of analyze each one of those introductory scenes and see what clues we get. I think Argyle's an easy one because it ends with like, just hang out, you know, I'll hang out and here's my number. And so it's like, okay, the movie is telling you this character is still in the mix, basically, uh, as opposed to if you just had like a weird limo ride and then an hour later that character shows up again you're like oh right, right that character from earlier you know um but i'd be curious to see how many how often that the movie does those little things those little hints like this is just the beginning of a story because also we just inherently as film watchers understand that too you can sort of tell when a movie is telling you this is a character who is being introduced and they're going to come back later versus this is just a little one-off scene that is you know is not going to have a bigger effect 
but then you also get disoriented when a movie is not telling you which it which it's doing right so you have a movie sometimes where you're just like i'm getting a bunch of new characters and i have no idea whether any of these people are going to come back or whether they're important but right. as you guys are saying this movie is just sort of like introducing people with the understanding that they are all going to come together in the third act in, in some shape or form yeah well and in action movies you need colorful characters that we can mm -hmm that we can get a, a really strong image of right away because we aren't going to spend a lot of time with them, but they're going to become important. Right. And the more colorful the character, the longer they're going to be in the movie, probably. Right. So like Argyle <laughs> is really colorful. He's going to be here until the end. Same thing with Theo. That guy makes it forever in this movie because he's really colorful. He's very strange and has this whole deal going on that I've never, Theo's a really interesting character. He's like the hacker guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the name of the blonde, long-haired German? Uh, Carl. Yeah. Carl. <laughs> yeah. Again, he has a he whole like, a visual thing. And, and all three of these characters I just mentioned have a, a strong visual you know, thing to them, too, where yeah, it's right. like they all have sort of their distinctive look that is, you know, kind of not what we expect or like, yeah, really interesting and and then you have 80s. characters. Mm -hmm. Ellis is another really great example. <laughs> gotta have the guy that you're rooting is gonna die as soon right. as possible. Oh God, I really hope this guy dies. Yeah, but he has a really you know colorful entrance, and he's such a jerk in that scene where the very first scene where we meet him. And um, yeah, so I think that that's another I don't know little mini lesson I was taking away as I was going along. I was like, these are big personalities, and mm -hmm. we can we grasp that within seconds of seeing each one of them and that signals to us how important they are or will be as the movie goes along and then if we want to talk about colorful characters now i have a machine gun huh, huh, <laughs> <huh>. <laughs> hans gruber like best uh -huh. villain of all time alan rickman amazing or or should i say bill clay Oh yeah. God! Oh, you're one of them. Oh God! It's, yeah, his fake accent voice is so specific and strange and yeah. amazing. Apparently, they wrote yeah. that scene because just to like so Alexander could have an American accent for a scene. Oh my God! Well, yeah, he like commits to it so hard. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's so perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah the design of of uh, Hans Gruber is really interesting and kind of the way that John McClane doesn't feel like a sort of stereotypical action hero, like hyper-masculine, I'm not afraid of anything. Like Hans Gruber feels like he has a, a third dimension to him yeah. and is likable and like charming in his own kind of weird way and is smart and clever in a similar way that like John McClane is smart and clever. So it's like if it was just a generic terrorist person or whatever, obviously it would be fun because you don't get that the kind of chess game that is being played weirdly between these two people. And that was something I was, yeah, picking up on a lot more this time also is that the, we, we see them interact with all these color, uh, colorful characters around them in really interesting ways. And that helps their characterization. And it's cool that their characterization is that of somewhat unique personas given the situation they find themselves in. Mm. Well, and, and they do embody, I mean, they say it very explicitly, you know, Hans Gruber is always talking to him about how he's an American cowboy and Hans Gruber is like, you know, an educated European. And so it's kind of like two different kinds of smarts, you mm -hmm. know, it's the, I am just 
intellectually smart. I am superior. I have a perfect plan. Look how stupid these Americans are. They're going to turn off the power right on schedule so the lock opens. Um, whereas John McClane is kind of like street smart. I'm going to think on my feet, NYPD cop smart. And so it's it's kind of these two archetypes of you know street smarts versus you know evil genius smarts uh going head to head and the movie in general feels yeah there's this really interesting just cultural thing happening there where yeah john mcclane is such an american character and embodying i don't know it feels very much like uh i'm not sure what the movie is saying exactly but it's almost trying to say like this is what is special about kind of an american uh street sense kind of sensibility that is different from like this intellectual class that Hans Gruber represents. Um, I don't know if that's, there's anything more to unpack there, but I, I, I was really struck by how it was called attention to a few times in the movie mm-hmm. by, by Hans, especially. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking that kind of connects to um, earlier. I forget exactly what you were saying, Tricia, but talking about John McClane and his kind of, he, he has this sort of improvisational, way of solving things Mm, he kind mm -hmm. of feels indiana jones ish in Mm -hmm. that way where he sort of jumps into a situation with kind of half a plan and then figures the rest of it out kind of along the way and we kind of it's fun for us to go on that journey with him and because of his personality which is a little bit you know not flippant but you know there's humor to it and the way that there's it's a, humor it's in a dark Jones. humor it's like a gallows humor almost where he's like i'm not right, gonna make it out right, of here you know true. kind of thing it's like it's like a coping mechanism you know basically mm-hmm. right it's like it's like i'm just gonna make these jokes because this is so horrible and i'm terrified yeah yeah but yeah that it it, it almost feels like an indiana jones but in 1988 in los angeles and a terrorist takeover building or also uh, uh, spielberg if you're listening please do not make that movie <laughs> we're, we're getting close to that timeline where oh no <laughs> oh boy Whoa. that's weird to think about well i think the thing about hans gruber is that uh he he has to be both likable and really menacing right because he almost in some ways I'm not going to say he's a secondary protagonist, but he carries so much of this movie. There are quite a few scenes that it's not half the scenes, but there's a lot that John McClane is not in. And we are privileged as the audience. There's an interesting POV thing happening where we are with Hans and we are aware from the very outset that he has a very elaborate plan that he is super confident about. And it raises this curiosity in the mind of the viewer where we want John to stop the plan. We obviously want him to stop the plan and beat the terrorists, but we also are curious about what the plan is. Like, why Mm -hmm. is Han so consistently not that flustered? Like, he's mildly annoyed most of the time. And the only time he really starts to get worried is when, you know, uh, John McClane takes the detonators. But even then, he's he's kind of still like no 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 just you know lock him in the elevator shaft he'll be fine no just ignore him like definitely determined and like oh the cops are here it's a little earlier than normal but don't even worry about it he's every time there's a wrinkle and we are in um john mcclain's point of view where we're like oh yeah 
the the cops are here. Like, thank goodness, it's gonna all un, you know unravel now. And then we cut back to Hans Gruber, and Hans isn't that worried. And so it it makes it has this propulsion to it where we're hoping that John McClane is gonna stop him, but it's that it, you know enjoyable, um, pure entertaining factor of watching people who are equally matched, right? Opponents who are equally matched. I think you said it was a chess game, Michael. It is. And so like, we, we're we aware that John McClane doesn't have an elaborate plan, but he is very sharp and quick and, you know, can mess things up because he's very creative at problem solving and very street smart, all the things we're saying. Um, he's definitely going to be able to mess things up. But we also do want to see the plan unfold. And so the move counter move um, rhythm of the whole entire second act of this, which is what the whole entire second act of it is after the break <laughs> into two, it's like it's a move counter move, move counter move back and forth. And each one of those is usually like a really fun action sequence, right? A little mini action sequence where John McClane takes out a couple more terrorists. But those moves and counter moves are entertaining to watch because of who Hans is and because of who John McClane is, but also that trajectory of the plan, which the POV sets us up for. We and, and there are ways that they keep the momentum going and reminding us that the plan is still happening, right? Where it's like, okay, Theo, where are you? How many locks do you have undone? Okay, we need to get those detonators back. Okay, the, we always knew the cops were going to be here. Okay, here's the you know, here are the, you know, radicals we want released from prison. And he's like, I don't really care about that. We, we are told that right away. So the script right. is constantly directing us to what is most important, which is that Hans has a plan, a very, very elaborate, well thought out plan that has not yet been derailed. And it is basically never derailed, not until the very, very end. And that's what keeps us watching because we always assume that Hans has one more trick up his sleeve. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and just a little thing that stood out and there also is like um you mentioned the elevator shaft at some point uh, mm -hmm. i was thinking a lot about elevator shafts sorry anyway this time watching through <laughs> because i feel like elevator shafts were like a really big deal in the 80s and early 90s yeah. like Mission every movie <laughs> yeah mission impossible like silence of the lambs mm -hmm. and uh, matrix like later. The, the matrix yep. right mm, yep uh, there's just like, there's so many elevator shafts and people like climbing up them or falling down them or standing on top and looking through the thing. Throwing bombs I mean, it's down a visually them. cool thing mm -hmm. in a in a big office building. Like how can you not take advantage of it? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a domestic thing that most people experience on either a day-to-day -day basis or a fairly regular basis. And it's a very dangerous thing. Right. 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 So so it's the same. It's like arachnophobia or something. It's 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 like, hey, this thing that's everywhere. What if it could kill you? Basically, and I think an elevator shaft is the perfect like, I mean, just like a car chase. Right. It's like, what is the thing you do every day that actually if something went wrong is terrifying as mm. opposed speed. to Another speed? Yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. As opposed to if you're if your entire setting is on a battlefield or something. None of that is familiar to to most viewers, right? But then when mm. you have when you take something sort of domestic, uh, especially something domestic that has the the potential for risk as an elevator shaft or a car or a bus or something, then that sort of like that hits our sweet spot. Mm. Yeah, I also feel like in addition to inspiring a lot of other yeah movie tropes, Die Hard also just 
it was like wow everybody who made video games after this like any like shooter video mm. game they're basically just making die hard like there's the the spaces you have to crawl through in so many games are so similar to the spaces that john mcclain has to crawl through and it's just the you know this building's unfinished for some reason so there's kind of industrial unfinished walls and things that's a very video gamey thing uh so that was just also fun to 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 see kind of a whole generation, I think, of game makers making like first-person shooters. I think all have Die Hard, you know, in their unconscious minds as they're making these games. Yeah. Well, it's just a really simplistic construction thing with a skyscraper, which is the doors are only on the bottom floor. Like, mm. you know, mm. if you have, you could have an equally enormous building. I don't know, something big and sprawling like a school or a hospital potentially that has multiple buildings, and it's so much harder for containment. Like the containment piece is just more difficult logistically because there's more doors. Like it's a huge campus. There's probably going to need to be a fence around it or, you know, there's going to be a thousand more doors just logically. And when you have a skyscraper and the terrorists control the bottom floor, then you have a lot of space to play in, but the containment Mm -hmm. piece is already done for you. You know, when I was thinking of pitching a, a containment video on for lessons from the screenplay, I was going to talk about I was thinking about Panic Room and, and Panic Room does a really good job with containment. But even they have more logistical problems because it's a regular old house and regular mm. houses have more exits. And like the second floor is still not like a problem. You can still get out a second floor window. Right. Um, in the same way that you simply cannot go out a 30th floor window. It's, it just doesn't work that way. And so, you know, you have a lot more sort of just like containment holes to plug in other kinds of buildings. And so a skyscraper is just a really smart one. A plane is another one. And that's why Air Force One, you know, um, right. is another like very classic diehard. It's the containment is already done for you. <laughs> like it's done. <laughs> Boats are the same way. Speed is the same way. Also, yeah. Die Hard 2 is Die Hard on a plane. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I said Con Air earlier, but I meant Air Force One. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, was, mm-hmm. I haven't seen Con Air. I don't know if it actually is what I'm thinking it is. But Air Force One 100% is the, you know, the the guy, right. the guy whose whose job this is not this is not his job to be doing this, but he is in a contained right. space and there are bad guys. But mm-hmm. what if he was the president of the United <laughs> States? Exactly. Get off my plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's such a great line like i feel compelled to say that often but there's no context in which that makes any sense or i would need to say that but i want more opportunities to tell people and don't say it on a plane i was gonna say probably not a good thing to say to anybody on a plane so the the one time you could say you definitely should not (laughs) right the great tragedy maybe if you're like on a flat surface with somebody <laughs> no, Brian. <laughs> or, in a, or in a wood shop. Beautiful. Oh my goodness. I love geometric humor. All right, I'll leave. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody. <laughs> you know what's hard? Trying to rob Nakatomi Tower on Christmas Eve. You gotta take out some guards, shut down elevators, ask an executive for the password to the vault even though you don't really need it because you already have a backup plan, hope the FBI cuts power exactly when you need them to, blow up the helicopter pad with the hostages, and hope that no one notices an ambulance being driven out of the parking garage by a bunch of bad guy looking dudes. And that's all before some Bruce Willisy cowboy throws a wrench into the mix. You know what's easy? And honestly, a much better use of your time? Sending files with Massive. 
Massive is a file sharing service that lets media professionals quickly transfer terabytes of data to anyone in the world over the cloud. With Massive, there are no limits to the amount of data you can send. And Massive has 150 servers worldwide, which means that whoever you're sending the file to will be able to download it at a maximum unthrottled speed. Transfers are encrypted, so no one but the sender and recipient can access the files. Not even Theo, Hans Gruber's tech specialist guy that loves to kick computers and smash servers or something. And drill. Why does he drill? And sending files with Massive is super simple. You don't need a subscription to sign up or a complicated IT setup. Just pay as you go at 25 cents per gigabyte. To learn more and to sign up for Massive, head to massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay. When you sign up at that link, you'll get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. Once again, that's massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay for 100 gigabytes free. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you to Massive for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Now, back to the episode. Speaking of holidays, should we talk about yeah. whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie? I suppose we Must should. We? Who wants to start? There's literally an entire YouTube video essay about this uh-huh. because I looked it up. And it just like it literally is like a list, you know, a list essay of here's like the six requirements for a Christmas movie. Does Die Hard fulfill them? I think its conclusion was basically it does. Um, but it's it's hard because what is a Christmas movie? It's it's a feeling mm. beyond. Of course. I think, to me, to me, there's like, yeah, there's like a scientific breakdown of it takes place during Christmas. And there is there is some Christmas music in it. And there are Christmas decorations and Christmas there is heartwarming family stuff. In yeah. the score, which I did not pick up yeah. on mm-hmm. before. But like the score is like the a vault. dark version of. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, for me. Maybe if it was associated with Christmas in my childhood, because that also is a big part of it. I think maybe people's feelings about it is if it was watched during the holiday season at a certain age, there's like an imprint mm-hmm. of that um, where it's just like, no, this is people are like emotional about it being a Christmas movie. It, I imagine it has to be somewhat tied in with with that kind of association. Um, I don't know if I get Christmas movie feelings personally from this movie um, enough for me to feel like. Like, this is, like, alongside my other Christmas feels movies. I think it's fun that it has a lot of Christmas things in it. Mm-hmm. But so do a lot of movies. So that's my that's that's where I stand currently. How about you guys? I feel like I couldn't care less either way. Uh, <laughs> right. Does it matter? <laughs> but yep. I will say that I, that's I do That's the right think... answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it does help that it, it ends on such a, like, lovely kind of magical note like i was just thinking like yes. if you did watch this back to back with like a muppet christmas carol they do kind of end in a similar way there's almost you know there's like a there's like a symbolic you know marriage kind of at the end uh that's almost like christened by the murder of carl who's still alive somehow <laughs> and <laughs> carl winslow has to shoot him and he's yeah. learned his lesson about killing pe- i don't know but it does kind of end with a little bit of like magic and like optimism of like and then they lived happily ever after which i think kind of feels christmassy the video essay also mentioned that like there's papers falling like in that final scene it's almost like Mm. snow falling yeah yeah uh and i think then it plays let it snow or something at the end yeah Mm. i mean it definitely ends on christmas for sure i mean the movie 
movie takes place on Christmas Eve and it's a movie about family and someone who was estranged from his family and learns, you know, that the value of admitting he was wrong <laughs> in order to be yeah. reunited with his family. That's a Christmas theme for sure. I mean, I like I don't care either, really. But like, <laughs> I think that I think that it's something I enjoy watching at Christmas time. There's a, a really interesting I mean, really what this is all speaking to is this sort of, um, you know, just a, a classic uh, paradoxical fascination with elements that seem like they don't go together that make something feel unique and fun, right? And so, like, there are, this is not the only action Christmas movie out there. Um, Shane Black, as everyone knows, is obsessed he's with- He's made, like, three. Making, yeah. He's made, <laughs> yeah. I think he's made more than three. He is obsessed no, with making, four, like- yeah action christmas movies and i i like shane black's action christmas movies a lot um and you know there's the the darkness of like the violence i mean which is something we probably should talk about in this movie this is a very violent film um the violence the r-rated language right like it's something that you actually can't watch with your kids but that has a little bit of that holiday flavor to it um is just that same it's just the same enjoyment that we as a culture get from like an irreverence right seeing things mm -hmm. that are, are not mm -hmm. traditionally paired together being paired together and it's like hey isn't it a little bit fun you can watch this after the kids go to bed right like it's isn't it a little bit entertaining to be irreverent about what you know what we think of as a sacred time usually in family and christmas and holidays all of that stuff and so I wouldn't say this movie invented it, but it certainly has spawned a lot of copycats. And it was one of the original elements, like maybe the most important element that they uh, insisted upon carrying over from the book, which is like mm. L.A. Christmas. Mm. And L.A. Christmas in itself is its own juxtaposition. Where it's like, oxymoron. It is yeah. Yeah, yeah, oxymoron. It is certainly not cold here. Like it is not ever going to be like the you know new england christmas that when we have right, la right. and it's it's palm trees and we're all at the beach and whatever although you know it's very cold and rainy today but most of the time it yeah, certainly right. does not in any way feel like a traditional northern hemisphere christmas in los angeles um mm -hmm. especially yeah again christmas is a time in literature and especially in film that we associate with returning to the small hometown that you're from and, you know, going back mm. to this sort of like idyllic, rustic, agrarian, <laughs> like root to your society and whatever, like getting in touch with your, you know, grandparents and things that are wholesome and LA is urban and it certainly has no reverence for the past and is certainly not about <laughs> not about any of the traditional like wholesome at least not the way that it's portrayed in film right there's right. um cities and parts of the country have uh associations with them in american cinema and los angeles does not have any sort of like familial warm fireside family associations with it in cinema and so the Fast and Furious yes. franchise is working on <laughs> it. Fast though. and Furious, God bless. <laughs> I hope so. We're family. But yeah, it's just borrowing language, right? It's borrowing cultural language and cultural shorthand to create a fun and irreverent juxtaposition. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that I agree with everything everyone said. Ultimately, I don't care. Um, and I think that it it also it just depends on what your definition is of a Christmas movie, right? Like nobody ever says that when right. they're like, we, we have this argument. It's like saying like, is peanut butter good? It's like, well, it depends on how, whether you like it. It's like, it's, you know, like right. that is up to you. It's not up to me. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think it's like, if you think a Christmas movie is a movie set during Christmas that references the fact that it's Christmas, great, that it's a Christmas movie. If you think a Christmas movie is like every single element of the movie is every single yeah it is like echoing christmas and about christmas and everything then like no like most christmas movies are not ones you watch after the kids go to bed they're ones you watch with the kids and then you watch die hard or whatever um and so yeah that's not an argument for or against it's just hey there's different definitions but i do think one thing that i think about is how much of your script would you have to change to make this not be a christmas movie if it's mm. elf or christmas vacation or miracle on 34th street like you're talking page one rewrite like you know this character who is this now has to be this and you know everything has to be kind of fiddled around this movie you could change i don't know 12 lines and <laughs> like the setting and you know that doesn't mean that there aren't still themes that are maybe associated with christmas and that kind of thing but like you wouldn't have to do a lot to make this movie have nothing to do with christmas and again that doesn't mean it's not a christmas movie it just means it's not a christmas movie in the same way other movies are christmas movies for, for better for us it's mm. a really important conversation we're yes. having guys <laughs> yes. at the bottom of this discussing <laughs> discussing things yeah, right. look uh, if we didn't talk about this then then yeah. we'd be on the naughty list with our listeners right. yeah right. sure but i i made the, you know the joke at the beginning about this is home alone for grown-ups but i think it mm. is like i think the same <laughs> yeah. fun that you have watching home alone you kind of have watching die hard as a grown-up and that I do think the context of this is at Christmas does the same thing that it does in Home Alone a little bit of like, oh, you're you're away from your family. You should be with your family at this time of year. Mm. So it gives you that extra little, you know, juice squeeze there. But right. Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why don't we move to lessons and what lessons we're each going to take away from Die Hard. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, we haven't talked much about him, but I love the character of Sergeant Al Powell. Mm -hmm. um, just as, you know, it's, it's a really smart choice, I think, to give the hero this ally who is kind of like a comrade who believes in him, who's a great contrast to all these suits, you know, who who don't believe in uh, in this the New York street cop, you know, the, the feds and the, I don't know, whatever rank the other kind of guy in the suit is. Um that that always just immediately you're rooting for the Sam and Frodo. You're rooting for the buddies who like know the truth, who are right about everything, but the boss won't listen to them. Um, and it also helps that, you know, John McClane, John McClane now has somebody to talk to, uh, isn't just stuck by himself. And, and there's like a real warmth between them, like right from the beginning. It's like, Hey, I see you, man. Like you're, you're a fellow like peer. Um, I, I, I get you. And at the end, I think it's so funny when uh, they they see each other 
I feel like it's more romantic uh-huh. than yeah. Story yeah. with John and Holly. And like, if you watch the frame when he goes and hugs Al, like she's just kind of left. She's like on like the left <laughs> side of the frame, just like left by herself. And she kind of like looks down, like, what do I do with myself now that like they've met and they've like they're making eye contact and they're really happy to see each other. Um, so I just I just love their bromance and uh, I just think it's one of the more delightful parts of this film. And I think it is it is very helpful and necessary for kind of that second half of the movie when there is this all this back and forth this politics with the feds and with the police and uh it helps to have that ally for john um who we also like right yeah i also love that his boss the police chief is the principal from the breakfast club who yeah yeah yeah. right like (laughs) playing the same character yeah (laughs) right the 80s was not a good decade for him dealing with people named john crawling through vents under his watch (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just it's a very specific well, problem the reporter guy is like mm. the, the asshole from ghostbusters also mm. who just like yeah, yeah, can yeah. only be that guy yeah well it's interesting alex i was thinking a lot about that this time around and there's this really sort of interesting examination of like the masculinity of both john McClane and al powell and their like roles as cops but as family men and the way that they see themselves right and I find it really fascinating that John McClane gives his like cathartic, tearful confession about what he's done wrong in his marriage to Al, right? Like, it's yeah, not to his he wife. He never yeah. says that to Holly, <laughs> not in the movie. Right. Uh, he just, just like it confesses to <laughs> Al that he, you know, always said, I love you, but never said he was sorry. And like that he, he knew that he had made mis- made a mistake, but was too proud to admit it, right? Like all of this stuff. And um, I, I think it's this really fascinating, like, I don't know, examination of the way that these yeah, men interrelate and, and think about themselves, right? Because ultimately, that's kind of the redemption that Al gets at the end of it, right? He, he thinks of himself as like a failure as a cop, right? He's like, I couldn't do one of the basic things required of a cop drawing my gun on people <laughs> not not shooting a kid <laughs> right it's the bar uh, that we have correctly assessing um threats right. <laughs> let's put it that way um i couldn't do one of the basic requirements uh as a cop and and therefore i am a failure right like he doesn't think of himself as being good at his job anymore. And yet we can see that he is very good at his job. Everything we see from him is that he's way better at his job than literally every person around him. Um, and his right. instincts are dead on about everything. And so the sort of redemption that he gets at the end of this by killing Carl in a very cartoonish way um, is just about <laughs> trusting his own judgment, right? Like he was he was put off trusting his instincts by this incident that happened where he made a bad call. And then he's like put back in a position of being able to trust his own judgment again and protect people that he cares about. Um, And that's kind of not the same journey that John McClane is on, but I I do think there's a really clear parallel happening where, you know, Al's wife is pregnant and John also is a father. And um, there are these very clear parallels of like, you know, John's not afraid to run into action. Actually, he's very afraid to run into action. But like, <laughs> he's he's gonna do the right thing because he's the only one who can, right? And so, when you're called upon to act, can you act? Um, that's sort of the question that John is 
dealing with. And it's the question that Al is dealing with too. And for that reason, I think they really see each other. And, um, you know, this movie has plenty of, I'm going to put this, uh, dated thematic content. Um, (laughs) and certainly (laughs) some of that is mixed in here, but I also think that there's something, uh, cathartic that we feel because it is well observed and feels like, true about their relationship it's textually um their relationship is textually parallel and resonant thematically so john's arc is not disconnected completely from al's arc and vice versa yeah i think there's a really there's a good faith reading of all this you know there's a way to be snarky about it all and be like yeah you can look at it with 2021 eyes but there is there there is a sweetness to their story and i think there's there's a good faith way to engage with it um Mm -hmm. even if it does feel dated yeah 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 brian what's your lesson um my lesson was going to be about the exposition but uh you got we covered it a lot in the early early on um but uh, i was thinking a lot about how you know, because this is this is always just called action movie, action movie, action movie. It's the main genre people put this in. But I was thinking about how much it's also a suspense movie, almost like a thriller. Mm-hmm. Thriller is not even the right word because we associate that with kind of a different kind of genre. But there's so much because there's only there's a finite number of of bad guys, as you were saying, Trisha. There's like one good guy on the inside, and there's like what like eight bad guys or something. Originally, like maybe twelve. 12. 12 originally, but that like goes down pretty quickly to, to about eight for the most of the movie, I think. Um, so you can't just have shootouts all day and you have zero car chases, you know, um, when you are in a skyscraper um, and not sort of the traditional action where we just think like, just have a crazy thing happen and have someone chase someone else and punch Hugo Weaving, but there's a lot of them. Um, and, <laughs> but instead it's like putting John in these impossible situations, right? Where he's mm-hmm. like the elevator shaft and the air ducts and the fire hose jump and walking on, mm-hmm. walking on broken glass. And it's just like, I realized that maybe that is why um, so many action movies feel boring. Like, like, you know, that feeling, especially as you get older, where you're just like, during the action scenes is when you kind of don't care and you're waiting for like the talking mm-hmm. scenes to come. you're like when did that happen when did i turn that age <laughs> totally um, it freaks me out right <laughs> but i realized a, a lot of the reason for that probably is because there's there's very little tension in a lot of action sequences it's just now you're going to watch things happen and there's stakes but there's not necessarily tension and this movie is just full of tension full of if that guy looks if he turns his head five degrees more, he's going to see me. And then everything, you know, goes to hell. Or if like finding, finding out that Holly is important, you know, Holly is such an important character in this movie. We haven't even talked about her, but Mm -hmm. like the fact that she's right between John and Hans and like, we are spending basically the entire second act hoping that like, if they, are they going to figure out who John is? Are they going to figure out who Holly is? They're going to figure out all this kind of stuff. So it's like the tension of all of that is as if not more, compelling to us than the fact that we get to see some cool action sequences along the way right totally yeah yeah because the the question is never like is john gonna die right now because we know Mm. on a meta level that he's not but there are as you're pointing out plenty of things that can go wrong that can hurt him either physically or emotionally and those are very much on the table and yeah i think that's when action scenes are actually compelling yeah yeah and this movie follows the make it worse rule. 
where those things do happen. He does get physically mm-hmm. hurt. He does get emotionally hurt, right? It's such a simple device, but you take the shoes away from the hero and <laughs> he can really get hurt. It's a big deal, right? Like, um, it's just the basic stripping away of like tools and resources until he literally doesn't even have clothes, right? Like (laughs) you take away all of his tools and resources and make it worse and make it worse. And the bad guy knows exactly who his wife is and exactly who his kids are and has, is then holding all of the cards by the end. And Mm -hmm. that's just really basic, but really smart writing. And all the things you just listed, those don't all just happen at once. There's a pacing thing where it's not like in the first act, Hans Gruber finds out who his wife is and she's just sitting there being a hostage the whole time. Because after a while, you would just be like, okay, she's not going to die. He would have killed her already. This is kind of boring now. But the fact that we are worried about him finding out about her for so long and then it happens, that's that's where you want it in the movie. You don't want it up front where then it becomes just, oh, nothing's going to happen because she's going to be fine mm-hmm. yeah yep trisha what's your lesson oh i have so many um <laughs> i'm gonna talk about the death of mr takagi for a second um which i think is really critical to this mr takagi won't be joining us for the rest of his life <laughs> so the quote i was hoping for thank you brian um <laughs> The death of Mr. Takagi changes everything in the movie because it is so awful the way that Hans Gruber mm. kills him. Um, like they have again with a pacing, there's this whole lead up. Well, hang on, let me back up. We meet Mr. Takagi, he's nice, he's thoughtful, he's super smart. Like we just met Ellis, who is a total jerk. But Mr. Takagi is not. He sees that Holly is an incredibly hard worker and, like, really values her. She's, uh, you know, on the path to promotion and all this stuff in the company. Um, And Takagi is, like, very personable. And he, you know, sent the limo and, like, he's he's likable. We only meet him for a couple minutes, but he's likable. That's crucial. Mm -hmm. We meet Takagi, Mm -hmm. he's likable. Then... The lead up after, well, actually, the lead up to Hans figuring out who he is, is also really clever and smart because Hans is walking around giving like reading Takagi's resume, basically, and is looking for Takagi to identify himself. And he does. He just steps forward Mm. and says, enough, it's me. Again, it's a very noble thing. We like him. That is a good leader, right? He has all of these great leadership qualities to him. And again, he's been set up long enough that we know we care about him. So when he steps forward, we're like, oh, no, Mr. Takagi, I hope you're okay. Then they have this whole big long scene where they're wandering around looking at all the models of all the buildings in your cool office, Mr. Takagi, with all of your, there's lots of models. And they're like (laughs) exchanging, you know, talking about his suit and all of this stuff. And they seem like gentlemen, right? That, this is the first real scene we get with Hans Gruber. And he's coming across as essentially a gentleman thief. And we start to think, okay, maybe he's not that violent. Maybe it's going to be one of those movies where he's going to negotiate. And maybe there'll be like, he's going to have to knock him around a little bit. But like, it's going to be fine. Um, and then as the negotiation goes on, Takagi insists he doesn't know the information. And we believe him. But it doesn't matter. 
because Hans Gruber just shoots him in the head. And it's it's so unceremonious and also very bloody, that scene. And it completely recontextualizes the entire movie and sets the tone for the rest of the movie. Like you have to have, it's awful, but you have to have the blood splatter on the window and you have to have John McClane overhear it. And it has to be done with that little concern on Hans Gruber's part where mm-hmm. Takagi's like, I don't know. I really don't know what you're going to have to kill me. And he's like, okay. And shoots him in the head. And that signals to us so much. This is how dangerous Hans Gruber is. He truly does not even think twice about taking somebody's life and somebody that we like in a really violent manner. And that's kind of what the rest of the movie becomes is we understand how formidable he is as an opponent to John. And then we also understand how bloody the rest of this movie is about to get and how many people are about to get killed. Basically. It's just, it's doing a lot of tonal work. It's doing a lot of character work. It's a really pivotal scene. Um, Poor Mr. Takaki, but it's good, smart screenwriting. Yeah. Another death, this isn't a lesson, but another death that is just so good in this movie is Hans Gruber's death. And just mm. the oh, shot yeah. of his face <laughs> as he falls is like a beautiful shot. And like the yes. just the performance in that moment is beautiful. And it's an amazing payoff for a setup at the yep. beginning of the movie with the Rolex watch. Just yep. how perfect, almost thematically too. Like, of course. Letting go of the watch. Yeah, it's, it's just great. So that... That continues to be one of my favorite just death moments for any villain. Uh, there's oh, something yeah. just magical about that shot of him falling. Well, and we've never seen yeah. him surprised. Like, mm, that's the thing. Right. Is that Hans Gruber yeah, doesn't get It's a different expression. Yeah, it's so, yeah, yeah. It's really satisfying. Yeah. Um, yeah, my lesson is, as we've talked about, the pacing in this movie yeah. is, I think, perfect. Yeah. Like that was something I was thinking about while watching and I was like, wow, this pacing is good. It might be perfect. <laughs> it might be the exact right pacing for this story. And as someone who's yeah read a lot of screenwriting books, I can see where a lot of these lessons came from, I think, of like looking at Die Hard and when it decides to interrupt the exposition with the bad guys are coming right the van is here something bad is going to happen so now we're like okay we got to lean in but there we're still getting exposition but now we know something bad is happening and then revealing the bad guys and then uh yeah action scenes john's doing things but then carl winslow shows up and he's part of the story now right we have that plot thread then we get the news guy at some point Mm. which is like every time it happens i'm you know, 30 seconds into the scene where it's suddenly we're in a newsroom. I'm like, why are we here? What's happening? And why am I not more bothered by this? But I think it's because it comes Mm -hmm. at exactly the right time where we need something else. And we're, we're, but we're still open to what the movie's going to throw at us and that it does create its own little mini story thread that pays off and like has to do with thematic things and John's family and all this stuff. So I, it, makes me want to rewatch this movie and study it scene by scene because it really does feel like every progression is happening just right on time and either developing things or bringing in something new at just the right moment to keep the flow going. Mm -hmm. And that's just such... 
it's a very difficult thing to do and it is marvelous when it works and i think that is what makes this feel like such a fun easy breezy ride of a movie yeah yeah absolutely i um you know i've seen this movie several times but i haven't seen it so many times that i remember exactly when like the scene is happening or whatever. Um, so I just remember so much happens in the first, you know, 45 minutes of this movie. And I remember going like, there's an hour and 20 minutes. Like what happens between now and like the big finale? Cause I feel like everything is already happening. And then it just keeps going, keeps going. And again, that doesn't mean look at all this action. It means just look at scenes that are compelling for one reason or another, whether it's a scene between a reporter and somebody or an action scene or whatever. And like you said, it's just, you never have a moment where you're just kind of sitting back waiting for the next, waiting to get back to John McClane because the the, the other scenes are as compelling and that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Good movie, despite, as I said, being an 80s movie. There you go, <laughs> they did it. <laughs> I'll say wow. like the biggest, the biggest hump for me was like, John comes in and he's like putting the name into the computer in the lobby and he's like, cute toy. And then the security guard guy is like, yeah, if you have to take a leak, it'll help you find the zipper. I'm like that. I don't know that I can like any movie that has that line. In it. That's just such a barrier to entry for me. Uh, but it, but it, it pulls it out. It, but then you should watch Die Hard with a Vengeance. It pulls it out. It's Die Hard with a Vengeance, solidly mid nineties, 1995 movie. And then, you know, just as good, Sam Jackson, Jeremy Irons, Bruce Willis, obviously, I recommend. I remember seeing the trailer for it. I feel like I know these movies based on their trailer. He has, mm -hmm. his daughter is grown up at one point. Yeah. No, and then, no, no, no. That's, that's the next one. That's Live that's for Your Die one. Hard. That's like the, okay, yeah, four. the Die Hard trilogy okay, right. is done and we're still making Die Hard movies. Right. Um, yeah. That's, anyway. That's when Die Hard became PG-13. Right. Mm -hmm. The real part. Yeah. Real departure. <laughs> Yeah. Very, right. very interesting direction they went. <laughs> uh, excellent. Okay, cool. Well, quickly, what have you guys been watching recently? Brian, what have you been watching recently? Uh, I saw The French Dispatch, the Ooh. new Wes Anderson movie. And when I say new, I mean the movie we all saw the trailer for 18 months ago and then <laughs> right. for reasons did not come out until a few weeks ago. Um and boy, it's it's Wes Anderson going full <laughs> Wes Anderson. Um, it's the, the the plot, if it matters, is that there's a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't. Uh, in the in the town of Ennui, um, uh, France. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, which which is near the River Blase. Um, sure. There is a newspaper called the French Dispatch. Bill Murray is the editor. He dies suddenly of a heart attack. And the people who work for, per his wishes, the people who work for him are writing a final issue of the newspaper, which is the movie that you're watching. So you watch in the same way Royal Tenenbaums is like a book that you are being told. Um, so each article that is being written by like Owen Wilson's character and, and uh, Tilda Swinton's character um, is like a 25 minute short with its own cast of characters. So it's like you get three Wes Anderson short films in wrapped up or three or four it wrapped up in this, in this sort of frame story that's, that's holding it all together. Um, and yeah, as I just hinted at this huge cast of returning Wes Anderson alums and then a whole bunch of newcomers, just this like enormously diverse cast of white people. And, um, <laughs> uh, and also Benicio and Jeffrey, Wright, So th that helps. Uh, <laughs> 
speaking of the cast, the, the first segment, there's two prison guards and I was looking at one of them and I'm like, where do I recognize him from? Oh, it's the father from the beginning of Inglorious Bastards from that opening sequence. Oh, oh nice. Oh, he's great. Yeah. But then the other prison guard is Leia Seydoux, who's one huh. of his daughters in that sequence. <laughs> And then Weird. Christoph Waltz shows up in the second segment of the movie. What? So, you know, what better uh, way to fill your movie with with whimsy and delight than to remind everyone of, of the hilarious <laughs> that opening scene? Yeah. Um, but yeah, ultimately, is it a good movie? Uh, it's at its best, it's delightful and entertaining. And at its worst, it's just overwrought and sort of alienating and, and kind of forgettable. Like by the third segment, I forgot what the first segment was about and that's hmm. not helpful. But the nice thing is each segment is its own story. So you don't feel like it had, this movie has 80 actors you've heard of it, <laughs> but like each one is only in their own little segment. So at least, at least that is not alienating, but it's just, I think the reviewers said, if you like, Wes Anderson movies, you will like this movie. If you don't, it's fine. And I think that that is, that is accurate. So I, I recommend it if you are in the mood for Wes Anderson doing Wes Anderson. All right. Cool. Well, yeah, that sounds, sounds right. Excellent. <laughs> uh, Trisha, what have you been watching recently? So I saw uh, Benedetta, which is uh, Paul Verhoeven's new movie. Um, oh. which is the lesbian nun movie, which I trust you've heard about. And um, it's it's really great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's a Virginia Efira, uh, who I've seen in uh, a couple different things already. Um, she's wonderful in it. Uh, Daphne Parakia, I'm sure I'm saying all these names wrong. Um, Lambert Wilson, our best friend, the Merovingian, uh -huh. is also in it. Yes, he's I saw great. him in the trailer and I was so excited. Uh, he's <laughs> what he's so good uh and of course the goddess herself charlotte rampling um mm. it's it's a you know movie that takes place in french and it's set in like the 15th century and it's about these this nun who starts having visions of jesus and then also um gets into a sexual relationship with like one of the like young nuns at the abbey and it's like there's miracles happening and is it magic is it all in her mind is she manipulating it is it real is anyone gonna find out about all of that it's paul verhoven so lots of nudity um it's uh it's great that's all i'll have to say about that <laughs> i really want to see it no I really it's, it's see like it. it's so good i mean it checks a lot of my boxes anyway because it's like a a period thing with like religious like sort of examinations of like ritual and superstition and politics and it gets into all of that um and yeah it's also just really goofy and also like horrifying at different moments and like it's just it's great so yes benedetta nice. it's out now I googled lesbian nun movie and that didn't come up, so I don't, I'll have to keep looking. But uh, yeah, everyone, everyone, Google that and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, uh, I think there are excellent. a few. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, what have you been watching? Um, so I went and saw Come On, Come On, which is the new oh, movie by yeah. Mike Mills. Um, it's a really lovely movie. All the reviews have been saying it's just you know what a delight. Uh, a delightful movie that's very realistic, really honest about just what it's like to raise a child, basically. Mm. And, um, you know, the joys and the 
uh, horrors of of it um and and it's about you know joaquin phoenix uh, stars as basically an uncle in the movie who's who's taking care of his nephew for a week or two and um and Gabby Hoffman plays his sister. She's great. But man, the, the kid who plays the nephew, Woody Norman, he is amazing. He's so natural, so such a kind of captivating uh, young actor to watch on screen. Um, Joaquin Phoenix does his usual kind of like, I'm a, mum- I'm a mumbly guy who kind of mumbles sure. my way through things. <laughs> but it works. It totally works for his character here. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely recommend it as if you just want to, you know, kind of have a slice of life, naturalistic uh ultimately tear-jerking a uh, little movie it's, it's mm. very nice come on come on nice awesome very cool really want to see that i listened to a podcast series uh you don't say mm. so radio lab is one of my favorite shows of all time uh and they did a five-part series called mixtape that is kind of about and surrounding the invention of the cassette tape And it's a piece of technology that we don't think about anymore, but essentially changed the world. And so it's these five episodes examining all the different ways that the ability to record something and play it back to yourself, essentially, uh, changed the world in Mm -hmm. in really interesting ways. So from anything for just like the Sony Walkman, where... Believe it or not, kids, there used to not be a way to just listen to music by yourself, but like while you're out in the world. And they talk about the first time, like the press release of the Sony Walkman. And just suddenly there was like hundreds of people all wearing these headphones and listening to music together, but separately. And the, the ability to like customize what you're listening to and also how it allowed for editing and, uh, Editing audio, it's much easier to deceive people than when you're editing video. There's Mm. no way to tell if you edit audio well that it's been edited. And so looking back at like Bing Crosby and the first time people edited something to make it sound like it was live. And is that morally right or is it wrong? It talks about like war and this really like kind of disturbing and upsetting but fascinating way uh, sound mixing and kind of sound design for the first time was used in the Vietnam War against the people of Vietnam. And it's it's a really interesting look at all the ways just sound affects us as people, but mm. also specifically how this technological leap suddenly unlocked all these new ways of communicating and experiencing the world. And I found it to be fascinating and amazing. The editing of the episodes itself are great. And the music is awesome. It's very well produced as Radiolab usually is. Uh, so I highly recommend at least checking out those five episodes because they're they're pretty cool. So mixtape on Radiolab. Nice. Okay. Well, we did it. We, t- we talked about Die Hard. And now we're here at the end of the year. It's uh, It's weird. Yeah. I'm gonna sit and think about that for a minute. It's, reflect on all this time. It's been a great year for the show. Thank you it to everybody been. who's listening, who's supporting yeah. us on Patreon. Like it's it's been so rewarding and so much fun to get to know you guys on our Discord channel, and just it feels like there's a real community that's formed around the show that is just so lovely. So that's that's been my big takeaway from 2021 is just how much the show has grown and just the people that we're getting to know through the show has been so lovely. 
feels like we're the luckiest people in the world. At least that's how I feel. <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't know, very, uh, such an honor to be here. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. Many things to be thankful for. Uh, we are certainly thankful to all of you for listening to the show and supporting it. And this has been our conversation about Die Hard. Uh, thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our wonderful producer, Vince Major. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. And again, on behalf of all of us, I want to say happy holidays, happy Merry Christmas, have a beautiful new year, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Really hoping you were going to say yippee ki motherfucker at the end there, Michael. We'll just put you saying that at the end, Vince. <laughs> I don't think it records me, so... My backup does. My backup does. Cuts all around. <laughs>